So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that, not, that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it, is, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that it could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would guide my mouth this morning that every true thing would go into our hearts and be planted deep and everything that is not of you will fall to the wayside. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so over the next couple weeks, we're gonna talk about the old and new covenant, the law and the promise, and what is different and what is continuous through both. And we're doing this to make purpose uh, make clear the purpose of the law and the priest and the sacrifices and that whole system and to show that God hasn't changed. And then um, from that point next week, we're going to get into a little bit of the history of the Reformation and kind of show that God's plan and God's purpose from the beginning is a, a redemption plan that spans the time of the church throughout all its, all its history, and including before the Reformation, during the Reformation, and after the Reformation. And so... God's promise is sure. God, God promises us that he will build his house. Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 16, 18, he says, I will build my church 
He tells Peter, I will build my church. And then Peter writes later in 1 Peter to the first century Christians. And this is what Peter says. Peter, you know, his name means rock. So there's this amazing play on words going on here. Jesus says to the rock, on this rock, I will build my church. Jesus says, I will build my church. And then this is what Peter says to first century Christians. He says, you yourselves, Christians, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So God is building his church, his house out of living stones. And um, those who, we are living stones if we have come to Jesus, who is the stone, the living stone. In the very beginning, God made a promise to his people. And specifically, he made this promise to Adam and Eve. He later made a promise to, we see it really with all kinds of people, Noah. We see it with other patriarchs between Adam and Noah. But um, we see it then again really clearly in Genesis with Abraham. And we're told that Abraham saw this house by faith in Hebrews. Moses, God's servant who received the law on tables of stone, was also part of this building process, we're told. He trusted Christ, Hebrews says. He trusted Christ. When a house is being built, there are elements that are necessary to put in place for construction. If you use modern examples, this, you could take this and you can apply it to any kind of construction from any time. But to, to just use modern examples for us, um, let's use the examples of a frame in a form of a foundation. You want to pour a foundation, what do you do first? You set up a frame. Before you can start pouring concrete, there's got to be a form, right, for the concrete. Um, or if you want to put up walls and siding, you use scaffolding. You can use scaffolding. And these things are, um, these are building elements and they're necessary for the building, but they are not uh, permanent. They're not part of the building. They're temporary by design. And so they're not part of the house at all. In fact, they're put into place for a specific purpose. And when that purpose is complete and the time comes, the foundation form is removed, uh, the scaffolding is taken down, and all the while, even after, before, after, the house is being built. The point is the house. All right, so we can think of the law and the Levitical priesthood, the system of sacrifices and priests, we can think of it um, in this way, like elementary building, uh, building elements. They served a vital purpose, and yet they were non-permanent by design. When Jesus came, he put away those construction elements. He didn't destroy them, and that's a, that's a really important point. He didn't come and he ju- didn't just destroy them. He put them away because the job was completed. He finished the work. So this is what he says in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. He says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you hear that? Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So as I said, next week, we're going to get into a little bit of the history of the Reformation and specifically some of the factors that led to Martin Luther's actions and Martin Luther's conversion. 
But for now, I want you to notice the, that what we just read, the tension that you could find there if, um, if you were confused like Martin Luther was. If you were confused about your righteousness. So listen what he says. Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. So who were the scribes and Pharisees? They were arguably some of the most religious and pious men ever. Very pious, very disciplined. And Jesus comes and he says all kinds of things to them. But he says this here. He says, your righteousness has to exceed there. So if you're of this mind of, I've got to really beat myself into shape here, you're going you're gonna to be um, pretty uh, desperate, pretty hopeless. So redemptive history from Adam to Abraham to Moses to David to Isaiah to John the Baptist to Paul in the New Testament to the Reformation world all the way to the culture that we now inhabit is... Is, it's not God trying different things to see uh, if this approach will work and let me try this approach and let me try this approach. It's not them just working and then running out of gas. It is, it is God's redemptive purpose throughout history from Adam until world without end. God hasn't been scrambling since the fall to play catch up with sinful people who keep messing up his plans. Jesus was never plan B. Grace was never plan B. So we can say these things and I know what happens. These things become kind of like cliches in our mind and so it's like, okay, yeah, duh. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The right answer to all the Sunday school questions. But understand this, that grace was never plan B. Faith in Jesus was never plan B. Let's try the law. Oh, it didn't make anybody righteous. Let's try faith. No. The new covenant was never plan B. God's purposes are eternal and they cannot be thwarted. We see that Job 42, 2 and Isaiah chapter 14. Something else that, that is really obvious about God that we all know, but it is really important for us to keep remembering is that God does not lie. In other words, God keeps his promises. He promised Adam and Eve a seed that would crush the dragon's head, Genesis three fifteen, And when he... Uh, when he made an everlasting covenant with Abraham, we see that in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. He made an everlasting covenant with Abraham. He did not just say, oh, forget it. Let's do something else. Let's start over. New covenant. No, he says, this is an everlasting covenant, Abraham. He didn't just forget about it and abolish it and start over with Moses at Mount Sinai. He remembers his promises and, he, and his promise is Christ. So when the Bible speaks of a better or a new or a second covenant, we got to take care to understand and to remember that God is not a liar. God doesn't just change his mind. So what does he mean when it's new covenant? A second covenant, old to new, first to second. So when Jesus died and rose from the dead and ascended to the Father, he set aside and he put away what was always temporary because its purpose was fulfilled. He removed the foundation forms. He did not remove the foundation. He took down the scaffolding. He did not take down the house. He did not take down the walls. And, and now, even now, it is the same house and it always was and it always will be. And that's some serious implications for how we read and understand what we call 
the Old Testament. I say what we call the Old Testament because, man, all these terms are just so kind of, nah, what is this? You know, the Bible. But in what we call the Old Testament, and uh, there are these commands and there are these promises. In other words, in the Old Testament, we see anticipation for Messiah. When we read about Abraham and Moses and the children of Israel, we got to understand that throughout their history, God deals with them, how? As his children, as his called out people and, 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 and called out, right? Called out. You think of called out of Egypt. This Exodus motif is throughout the scriptures. It's amazing. And we see this play out over and over again. I mean, from the beginning, Adam and Eve, what happens to Adam and Eve? They have this Exodus from paradise. God drives them out. We see it play out over and over again. And he would often, when that happens, what does he do? He gives his people new names. He says, get out, go out, and here's a new name. And so we come to the new covenant. God's called out people are no different. The church means called out people. And we are his church. And we have been given new names. And so who are the people of God? Who are the people of God? Was it the Jews? Now it's the church. Was it? Um, by birth, you know, you got to be a child of Abraham, trace your genealogy back there, and now it isn't by birth. It's by something else. Galatians 3.29, we read it. It says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. If you are Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. We are uh, no longer Jews or Gentiles according to the flesh. We are no longer Jews or Gentiles according to the flesh. And yet, by faith, by promise, we, by faith, we are who Paul called, if you go to the end of Galatians in chapter 6, verse 16, you'll see this phrase, the Israel of God. Who is he talking to? You, me. The Israel of God who is those who are, have faith in Jesus. So this is what Paul means when he points out that the offspring is singular. The offspring is singular. It's not plural. Remember, he makes this point in our text that we read. It's singular, not because, now listen, it's singular, not because it's talking about Jesus Christ, the individual. Remember, he says here in verse um, verse. 16, it does not say to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. But he's not talking about the individual Jesus Christ. He's talking about singular Christ because it is not many houses. It is one house, house, the house of Christ. It is not many Jews and Gentiles. It is one new man, Christ Jesus. Who, when the Bible calls, you know, uses that terminology, one new man, Christ Jesus, who is it talking about? us and so paul is saying hey it's singular jews and gentiles you have been made one in christ not plural promises to one house to one offspring not many offsprings one offspring one house christ and so the children of israel were under a temporary system that was this was a copy system it was a system that foreshadowed or spoke of and pointed to the true heavenly system. And this is why when Moses is about to set up the earthly tabernacle, God says, it, God says this, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. 
this was a copy. God was having Moses build this tabernacle. Do you know what a tabernacle is? A tent, a temporary house. God was having Moses build this tabernacle and all its furnishings and implements, this system to be a shadow, a shadow of the heavenly substance that God showed him. And, and it was going to be a copy of the original. It was, says this explicitly in Hebrews 8, 5. And we see when God, when God tells Moses to build the tabernacle, God tells him to make, um, for example, he says, on the curtains into the most holy place, I want you to weave cherubim in the curtains with a sword. Now, if you're familiar with your Bible, if you're familiar with the story in Genesis, what do you see in the entrance at Genesis in Eden? When God drives out Adam and Eve, what does God put there to, to protect the tree of life? A cherubim with a sword. And so God tells Moses to build this tabernacle as a pattern, a copy. And we see the copy even was a copy of Eden. And therefore, Eden was a copy of heaven. This heavenly thing is all, is, is, is a pattern of something original. And since the old covenant, or what's been called the heavenly shadow covenant, was a copy or a shadow, the new covenant or the heavenly covenant was actually already in operation before the old covenant and during the period of the old covenant. I'm going to read that again. Listen to this. The new covenant was already in operation before the old covenant. It was in operation during the period of the old covenant. Listen to this quote from a pastor. Those who understand the new covenant as something beginning at a certain point in time do not un understand that the covenant is different in kind and not merely different in time sequence. This covenant, like the priest, who is the minister of this covenant, Jesus, is, the book of Hebrews says, Jesus without beginning of days or end of life. This is the priest Jesus is. The new covenant does not start in time, although it does come to fruition and fulfillment in time. It does not start in time. It does come to fruition and fulfillment in time. Okay, so we don't get to the new covenant. Um, you know, it's not invented later on after the old covenant. This is the, this is the heavenly covenant. This is the substance. This is what it was always meant to be. And the old covenant was a shadow of, a copy of, pointing to that. Hebrews 8, 6 through 7. You can write these down. We're not going to have time to dwell too much on them. But Hebrews 8, 6 through 7 tells us that Christ has obtained a ministry that is, that is as much more excellent than the old. The, than the old covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. The new covenant is better than the old covenant because it is enacted on better promises. And this is what the book of Hebrews tells us. Listen. He says, for if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Fault. When the author of Hebrews uses the terms old or first covenant in context, he's referring to the law and the Levitical priesthood, which came 430 years after. You can go read Hebrews 8, Hebrews chapter 9, and you can see he's talking about the law and the Levitical priesthood. And, they, and this came 430 years after God made this promise to Abraham. God preached the gospel to Abraham. God said, this is an everlasting covenant with you and Abraham. You're going to get the land, Abraham. You're going to be a, a father of kings, Abraham. And so this law came after. And this doesn't mean the law is contrary to the promise. Like Paul said in Galatians, certainly not. And yet the scriptures teach this distinction between promise and law, doesn't it? Yes. It teaches a distinction between faith and works, right? 
Yes. And, and at the same time, there's this continuity. There's this connection. God's everlasting covenant spans throughout redemptive history. Let me give you some examples. In Exodus chapter 2, 24, children of Israel are getting ready to come out of Egypt. This is what um, God says, Exodus 2, 24. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. He remembered. Exodus 3, 15, God said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. What's his name? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Throughout all generations. You know what that includes? Us. This is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Leviticus 26, 40 and 42. But if they confess their iniquity, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. And I will remember the land. 2 Kings 13, 22 through 23. This is the time of the kings. King, king Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. And he turned toward them because of the, his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would not destroy them. So in Hebrews 8, 6, and 7, the author says better promises. And he mentions the first covenant was not faultless. So the question is, where did the fault lie? If there was fault in the first covenant and we needed a second covenant, where was the problem? Where was the fault? Was the law flawed? Was the law, was there fault in the law? Was the law evil? Was there a deficiency in the law of God? No. Listen, that may catch you off guard, but listen this. The law was not flawed. The law was not evil. And Paul makes this clear in Romans 7, 7. He says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. The law is not flawed. If you go on in Hebrews, back in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, that's what I just was talking about. If you go to the very next verse in verse 8, this is what it, it starts with. It says, for he finds fault with them. So he says, there's fault in the first covenant. There's fault here. We need a second. And this is the very next verse. For he finds fault with them. So the fault is us, ours. We are where the fault is, not in the law. And so the fault is ours as the law keepers, or, or we could say better, the law breakers, right? We're not law keepers. And so it is for this reason that righteousness and life cannot come by the law. The law is not flawed. The law is not evil. We are flawed and we are evil. We are deficient. We are, and so the law by nature could not remedy that. The law could not, Get to the problem, the root of the problem, which was you, you and me, our hearts. And so it could not give us life. It could not make us righteous. And in the same way that going to school can't give you a brain. You have a brain, you go to school, you can get smarter. But if you go to school and you don't have a brain, guess what's going to happen? You can't fix that. 
<laughs> right? That's how the saying goes. You, going to school can't give you a brain. The law could not give you righteousness, give you life. It wasn't capable of that. It wasn't meant to be capable of that. And so since the law couldn't make us righteous, what was the remedy? So this is my question to you little guys. We just read our story today. Kids, kids, what is, if the law couldn't make us righteous, who can make you righteous? Jesus. Jesus can make you righteous. The law cannot make us righteous. Who can save us from sin? Jesus. Jesus can save us from sin. So the new covenant is better because the promises are better. The promises are better because they actually deal with us. They get to the heart of the issue. Another pastor says this. He says this. Galatians 4.1 says that the people in the old covenant were like children. Galatians 3.24 says that the law was like a tutor for children. The law was a tutor for children. The law then was a simplified accommodation. It was schoolwork. It was homework. It was a simplified accommodation for children. He says this. When we expect, we expect more from adults than from children. Adults have greater responsibilities and are more accountable than children. Thus the new covenant law is actually much tougher to obey because it makes so many demands on our inward attitudes. Do we have higher expectations for adults than for children? Yes. Yes. And so the, when the new covenant comes into play here, as Jesus is preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, for example, he says, don't murder. You know that law? Don't murder. But this is what, this is what I'm telling you. If you look at your brother and you hate him in your heart, you've broken the law. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I'm telling, it, I'm telling you, you look with lust in your eyes. You've broken the law. Easier or harder? We don't have time to go any further than this, so we're going to stop here. But let me just suffice it to say this. Under the old covenant, you sin, you take your sacrifice of blood, your offering of blood. That offering is killed. The blood is shed. And what happens to the person offering it? They kill him next? No. What happens next? They go free. They go free. You bring your offering for your sin. The blood is spilled. And you go free. Now, does that point us to Christ? Yes. Was that a, satisfac was that a satisfactory system in the old covenant? No. Bulls, goats, blood of bulls and goats, doves. You think that's good enough for your sin against the holy, righteous God? No. And so, there was a lot more to it. A lot more to it that we're not going to get to today. We're going to pick back up here next week. So, at this point, I want to invite you to the table and I want to remind you <coughs> that the table that we're coming to <coughs> The table that we're coming to, the invitation to this table is a table for sinners. It is not a table for those of you who have beat yourself into holiness and righteousness. It is not a table for those of you who have cleaned up so nice 
And now you think you're good enough to go. No. This is a table for screw-ups. This is a table for people who don't, um, who can't save themselves. That's what this table is. That's what we celebrate at, uh, when, we, when we celebrate the gospel. We say, thank you, God, for saving us because what the law showed us is true. We can't save ourselves. You can't make yourself acceptable to God. And so, sinners trusting in Jesus Christ, come and welcome to Jesus. Come to the table. <clears throat> Some of the things we talked about or we didn't get to today, they may have been confusing. You may not have been familiar with some of the references, especially you kids. Different parts of the Bible, different stories you may not be very familiar with or you may have gotten bored, you may have checked out and that's okay for some of you. That's okay for some of you, but not for all of you, right? What we talked about, there are different expectations for children and for adults. And so it may be okay for some of you, but it is not okay forever. If you're a child of God, there's an expectation that you will be maturing and growing up into the knowledge of God. And so it is true we have different expectations for kids and for adults, and maturity is not an overnight process. And ultimately, you cannot make maturity happen by just trying really hard, but you can do things. And so this is your charge. One of the things you can do is to eat your food. Do you have a Bible? Are you reading it regularly? So this is the thing. This is not a, um, this is not one of those uh, guilt trip charges. We just came to the table because we're screw-ups. This is one of these exhortation charges. I don't want you to be like, you know, I'm guilty. I don't read the Bible. And now he's making me feel bad because I don't read the Bible. No, listen. Here's the charge. Eat your food. Start today. Eat your food. Christian, grow up in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Eat your food. One of the most common excuses for uh, poor Bible reading is this. I don't have time. And I'm telling you, that's a lame lie. Repent of it. You have time. If you eat, drink coffee in the morning, you have time. If you exercise, you have time. Let's just take it even more basic than that. If you take a shower, you have time. If you brush your teeth, you have time. There are great tools you can use. Things like listening to the Bible. Listen to it in the shower. Listen to it while you're brushing your teeth. Listen to it while your coffee's brewing, while you're exercising, whatever, while you're driving in your car. You have time. Don't make an excuse. Eat your food. Eat your food. Grow up. Eat your food. And so, if you listen to uh, the radio, you have time for the Bible. If you listen to a podcast, you have time for the Bible. If you watch a TV show, you have time for the Bible. You have time. So it's really not a matter of time. It's a matter of priorities. So get your priorities straight and eat your food. So whether you are a business person putting in the hours or a stay-at-home mom chasing messes after messes, get your priorities straight and eat your food. It's vital. So do that, all right? If you need to repent of your lame excuses, then repent. Don't be guilty. Repent and move on and, and eat your food, all right? So here we go. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.